Hello, I'm Grant Bartley. This is the Flottery Now radio show uh, on Resonance. And today we're talking about the problem of the brain and free will. Uh, let me just in- introduce the people and the problem to you. Uh, the modern problem of free will is that we know that the functioning of our minds depends on, on the functioning of our brains. And we know that the brain is a physical thing and therefore obeys physical laws. So, if the behaviour of the brain is determined by physical laws, what room is there for free will and free choice. Furthermore, some recent studies suggest that the brain prepares the body to act before a conscious decision to act is made. If this is true, then what use is conscious decisions? Or is it just an illusion? To help me answer these and related questions related to the brain and the mind, I have with me Dr. Sam Coleman from the University of Hertfordshire, Norman Backrack from uh, the South Coast Ethical Society, and Camilla Martin, independent scholar. So um, I've asked each of the people to prepare a little presentation of their view. So um, we're just going to go go to that. Who's going to go first? Uh, Norman. Oh, okay, this is Norman's view on the nature of free will. Far away, Norman. Okay. The question of free will is really the question of how we humans make decisions. On Earth, being mobile, animals have had to make decisions about what to do or which way to go for the past 600 million years using their evolving nervous systems. For example, a hungry crow spots a worm and flies down to eat it. It hears a sound, a fox maybe. Should it fly off or carry on eating? Its life depends on making the right decision in milliseconds. Our superior nervous systems must take many factors into account, but the basic process is the same. We have evolved to choose on the basis of the information we have, At a mainly unconscious level, streams of information compete for dominance, quickly resulting in the winning course of action. However, people claim to feel free when they can do what they want to do. In the common use of the term free will, free just means free from external compulsion. No gun is pointing at you. This is not only compatible with there being a causal story within our heads of how we came to make the decision, but requires that the world facilitates our carrying it out. Because in order to carry out our choice, our decision successfully, we require our nervous system and the world to be a lawful place, because our brains have to rely on utilising the way the world works. At present, physics says the world is, on the whole, a lawful place. But the tiniest particles, electrons, photons, etc., behave somewhat arbitrarily, that is, indeterministically. Although, at the brain's neural neuron's working level, to fire or not to fire the particular neuron, these tiny irregularities are smoothed out. So the brain is de facto a digital deterministic mechanism when it comes to effecting decisions. A random behaviour would be unviable, would render the brain of its owner unfit to survive. We will soon be able to track brains making decisions in great detail, 
using magnetoencephalography. Then, defenders of a libertarian will, that is, a will free from all causes, will have a bigger problem. Libertarians reject a causal story, determinism for the will, but rightly also have no use for indeterminism, because they know it allows irresponsibility. They are therefore beyond all logic. Their position is incoherent and can hardly even be stated. No event, no action could be other than it was. We have to come to terms with that. We can find a use for praise and blame to alter the future behaviour of persons we affect. Religionists, trying to justify the ways of God, are fond of wheeling out the free will defence. Free will is said to be a gift from God. In other words, it's supernatural, magical. But even a supernatural faculty has to operate either deterministically or indeterministically. There's no logical alternative. Theologians know that even God is bound by logic and cannot make a square circle. The great retributor in the sky cannot justify his eternal punishment of sinners. In our legal systems, we shall have gradually to cut out the retributive element in treating criminals and during any necessary incarceration of them, try reformation. And understanding motivation will become the norm in future. That's a summary, and uh, I expect the people surrounding me to pull it all to bits. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Norman. Uh, I suppose that means you would call yourself a determinist. No, I said that... I rely. I will wait to see what physics says. Okay. It could be determinist or it could be indeterminist. That's a matter for the physicists to say. Okay. All right. We're going to go on to Dr. Sam Coleman now. Uh, Sam, would you like to tell us your view on the nature of uh, the relationship between the brain and free will of theorism? Yeah. Um, I I think I take most seriously uh, everyday life as we live it and experience it, and I think that. <laughs> Um, I mean, right now, here I am, I, I raise one of my fingers, I just feel an impulse to do it. I can feels to me that I can raise whichever one I like. You who are listening can do exactly the same right now. It's very hard to overcome the impression that that's completely within your power. And I think my view about one of the jobs of philosophy uh, as, regard to, as regards science and, and the, some of the scientific experiments that Norman referred to is that philosophy's job is to try to preserve if possible common sense and everyday lived experience if at all possible in the face of what science seems to tell us so um i i think that unless really forced to uh, i would find it very hard to give up the sense that my consciousness my conscious decisions really do cause uh firstly really do cause my actions and secondly that i'm in some substantial sense free when i do those when i perform those actions and so i would take issue with probably norman's interpretations of some of these experiments so i kind of look forward to getting into that nitty-gritty um yeah that's that's more or less all i've, all I've okay 
Well, that's good enough for a, um, an introduction. Uh, we, we're going to, uh, as you say, go into the points in more detail later. Okay, Camilla, do you want to tell us uh, what your view on the nature of uh, free will or if it exists is, please? Yes, I think I'm going to take a position between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this section, I've... Uh, I have called it that we are all epistemic engines and by epistemic I mean that we try to justify our knowledge including acknowledging our paucity of relevant knowledge to be sure of a decision taken that relies on a comprehensive amount of knowledge about the world around us. I'm saying that because I want to lean quite heavily on this idea of knowledge. Uh I'm going to try to defend initially our experience of free will on the grounds of available knowledge. Well our available Uh knowledge. I'd like to stay in keeping with Norman's causal story Story, often called determinism, so this will start off being a compatibilist view. Which means what, sorry? Well, I was going to say, okay. that means compatible with the Hobbesian idea, I take it, uh-huh. that my decision-making now has directly been led up to by my last brain state, whatever that is, which followed each event that I was in contact with before that. Right. Um, however, I want to organise a change in emphasis. Um, but I want to introduce the idea of different perspectives on this concept of determinism, which is the causal story, yeah. basically. Perhaps I could start by matching Daniel Dennett's physical stance with um, Norman's talk of events, and I, I take it the micro-world connections, needing to be connected via such things in physics as momentum exchange to lead to each new event. So that whole view would be called by Dennett the physical stance. It, it, it's basically a description at, at a micro level uh, of Could you put it in universe. English what you just said? <laughs> I don't know if I could express it in any yeah, other yeah, way. Yeah, go ahead. Perhaps you want to praise it afterwards. Uh, um, uh, was but but whose, whose view is this? This is also a logical view. I noticed that, and I wasn't entirely expecting this, that Norman lent quite heavily on um, what I would call uh, logical necessity. Yeah. Uh, I think I was um, thinking more about uh, nomological or, or causal types of necessity, so that one event has to have a cause right. coming before it. So that's even true of choices, that's what you're saying, that your well, choices that, that, have to have causes and therefore they're not free? I su- yes, I suppose that's what uh, what Norman meant by this, and, and I think that I wanted to match Daniel Dennett's so-called physical stance with that being in that arena. I, I don't think the, the listeners would know what Daniel Dennett's physical stance is. Well, I was just matching it to, okay. to, to, to Norman's yeah, talk. Can you tell us what it is, though, please? Well, I thought I had. Mm. Can I... Can I step on from that? Yeah. So w- what we have is one, what I would call an overview. Um, uh, Norman was talking a lot about... Um, logical necessity for determinism but I wanted to keep it a bit more in keeping with just a causal story something we can all see every day around us so everything has a cause and that would include as you just said our decision making or choices I didn't mean to spend so long on that bit I I thought it was going to be fairly self-evident I'm sorry Um, and then I said but whose view is that in fact as I've just mentioned this is the scientific story and it starts as I said, in the micro world, roughly at the atomic level, let's say, and builds up to rocks and stars and planets. As it uh, unfolds, we reach the next level, which I will call Dennett's design stance, which is the idea that as things come together, in particular composites Mm -hmm. like us, or any medium-sized tools that we've made, uh, for example, um, they can be considered to have purposes for their actions. Uh, The idea of a purpose or use may be seen from the outside by us, but obviously when we come to talk about human beings who are self-aware, we're also aware of our own goals. Uh Now, 
If I can, is that all right? I can continue with that. Now, at first blush, there may seem something odd about goal-driven design composites in the light of the underlying causal story of one damn event after another. So now I want to reintroduce the two ways of considering this. Let's take us, any of us as a human body, comfortably moving around as a kind of vehicle in the world. Mm -hmm. On Norman's Hobbesian account, there is a backseat driver... The engine is behind us, if you like, in that all the states of affairs snaking back to the Big Bang must have been in causal contact that led to one another, and then that leads to us to the situation we're in now. Mm-hmm. However, on Daniel's, um, Daniel Dennett's design stance, we're in the driving seat okay. with an engine at the front directing us, or we're directing it to direct us, through our decisions as to where to go within the limits of what is possible. And I know that that fitted in with a lot of what Norman had to say when he first started about animals having to make decisions in order to survive and so on. How, though, can both those views be right? Yeah. Um, In fact, the missing stressed detail, this is where I want to change the emphasis, from the Hobbesian account, is the engine at the front, the one where our own ruminations, awareness, and thus feedback on our knowledge of our immediate environment, plus any rational features we know, mean that we feel the strain of trying to predict what best choices to make. So here I'm agreeing with Sam that there is very much in everyday experience a feeling of having freedom, perhaps we might get round to calling it free will, to make choices. Whether we follow our desires or our beliefs, as Leibniz said, um, there is a limitation on our knowledge to mostly what is immediate and local, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I call it an epistemic horizon. I'm nearly finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, which provides the need to try to predict rather than having certainty of our future. It's the combination of the physical constraints on our actions plus the need to predict the outcome that is what I believe feels like free will or compatibility. Okay, so let me see if I can summarise this a bit. You're saying that uh, we are physical systems but because of the way we've evolved we've evolved so that uh these physical systems have like lots of inputs which give us the feeling that we've got purposes and then we act on the basis of those purposes but it's because is that right and and it's because and it's because um we don't know all the causes that are acting upon us our epistemic, as you say, our epistemic horizon, our, our limitation of our knowledge, if you translate it from the Greek, uh, means that um, means that we don't know. We think we're free, but we're actually not because we've got all these causes determining our actions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh well, I think we're going to go for a go for a song, and then we're going to argue about this. So, uh, see you in a few minutes, listeners. Go! 
I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You, you just heard Clayton Moss and Better Things from the album Cross Section. We're talking now about the brain and free will. I've uh, let Norman, Sam and Camilla uh, give their um, presentation of their positions and now we want to find out uh, what's correct. Are we completely determined by uh, everything that's happened to us so that there is no option of what we do basically or is there something at the end of what everything we've determined which still leaves us with choice i think i think the latter one is sam's position and the former it would be camilla's and and norman's position so do you think that's true guys would you say that you you both say that um given the fact that physical laws control the brain and you know the the next state of the brain is entirely dependent on the previous state of the brain in terms of physical laws do you think that's all there is to say about it in which case free will is an illusion or would you be a bit more nuanced than that okay norman okay now we've got to be careful if we're going into what is the nature of the relation between consciousness and the brain? Right. That isn't necessarily primarily the subject of today. But my, my belief happens to be that the brain generates consciousness. The consciousness, if you like, reflects or copies uh, what is happening 
in the brain. It's not an independent force that can act on the brain. If you believe there is a you, in quotation marks, uh, a mind, a you, a consciousness, which acts on the brain, then I think the proper term in philosophy for that would be Cartesianism, because it was Descartes who said that there is a mind which is an independent substance, which has free will, it can do what it likes, and it can act on the brain. What's wrong with that idea? Well, it may be... It, let's not go into that. It may be right, but the real point as far as free will is concerned is that even if you've got this independent conscious substance, I'm going to still ask you, does it, is it deterministic or indeterministic which, which in the way it what? goes? Deterministic means that it follows the causal story that we've talked about, right. that everything it does depends on its past history. Indeterministic, the only logical alternative, means it acts at random. So well, no, s- it doesn't necessarily mean it acts at random, does it? Well, I mean, I've, just never, because, I've just never because yet there heard. Are determ- determinations mm. of, of what you choose doesn't mean your choice is random, no, does no, it? We're, we're, it just means that your choice is free from prior physical conditions. Yes, Could, but then you have to ask, what does it depend on? on what does your choice depend on if you're going to deny that it depends on the brain whether that's deterministic or indeterministic what does it depend on okay stop stop there Norman okay Okay, uh, Sam do you want to have a go answering well I I I mean I I don't know why Norman ignores the possibility that this portion of the self or the mind could be self-determining in some relevant sense um, um, okay, maybe you want to fill in what that sense might be. Well, g- it means that given the history of the universe up to a certain moment, right. it's open to that portion of the mind or the self, what it's next, the next thing it wants to will or choose is. And it, it isn't constrained to choose this thing nor this other thing, but it could choose either and maybe some other ones as well. Okay, and can I, can I, <clears throat> I think the Norman's choice, Norman's question, if I can translate it, in that case, is what causes you to choose one thing rather than another? <coughs> Very good, yeah. But I'm not sure that that's a sensible question here. I'm saying there might be something that is unconstrained, and you're asking me what causes it to choose to make its choices. Yeah. So we're just butting heads now. Mm. I'm so saying that means choice is random. No. Why? Do, okay. Why doesn't it mean choice is random, Camilla? Well, I wanted to take a more nuanced approach than Norman's, but uh-huh. I have a lot of sympathy with sure. with what Sam is beginning to develop. If you recall, what I was trying to develop originally was um, an epistemic argument, an argument about knowledge and about right. how how much we know or how we justify what we know. So I was trying to take the emphasis, lead us away from simply looking at this view of determinism, the right. one that says everything must have been caused by the backseat driver by some event. Before So when you asked that question of Sam, I agreed with him that you were just butting heads there. And so then the question becomes, how is it possible, without committing ourselves to being a Cartesian dualist, having a mind free-floating entirely away from the physics of the brain, how would it be possible to have something that might be self-determining? I don't have a full answer for that, but I had prepared something that might lead a little bit towards it. So just to give you a very brief overview, I wanted to stake a claim on saying that there may be a way for a physical system to have some degree of at least knowledge, or in this case information, changes that mean it could have some sort of self-determination and i was going to start that by having another look at the libet experiments but uh, i take it okay, sam well, might be going to do sure that we'll anyway. get on to libet in a minute but um do you want to respond to that sam um 
Well, I'm not sure what I'm responding to. I like the idea of a self-determining physical system. Uh-huh. It certainly seems to me that um, <laughs> there's obviously some moti- you know, strong motivation behind the thought that um, energy must be conser- conserved. That's a fundamental physical mm-hmm. law. It seems con- it seems confirmed by everything we've seen in the laboratory to date. You know, I mean, animals only use up as much energy as they take in by food and so on. Um, but still, perhaps there's some self-determining portion of the mind uh, slash brain that respects the conservation of energy, but can still select between different possibilities that it wills. Um, yeah. Well, can I just butt in here, because that's exactly what Descartes thought. Mm-hmm. He believed that the the reason he believed in free will was he did have his version of the law of conservation of energy. I think he was just thinking of atoms moving along with a certain speed and that was going to be conserved. But he said, "Okay, you've got your mind and that can cause them to swerve. And this is actually, um, you you get this in Greek and Roman thought too, that there's a force that can swerve and that gives us free will. Now, what he didn't realise was that to have a force that causes an atom to swerve, uh, you, that force is got it's exerting momentum on that particle. And um, there's another. Not if it was going to go one well, way or the uh, other, uh, to make it go one way rather than the other, isn't necessarily going to break any hang laws on, of physics, is it? Just explain this. If a particle is going north and then suddenly it's caused to swerve to go west, yeah. that means a force is exerting has been exerted on it in that direction and that means you've broken the law of conservation of momentum because you because which says that there has this momentum can't change in other words if you're going to deal with physics you don't just have the conservation of energy to think about as descartes thought mm-hmm. you've got to take into account all the laws of physics Fine. now if you want to say that there is as um, sam wants to say that there is a self which can look down upon physics and then make up its own mind. That's fair enough. You can have that position if you want to. But um, my point would be then, you still have to answer the question, what de- uh, which Grant asked before, what is it that determines this self? How does it decide which option it's going to have? Okay. So you are. I really want to ask Sam, do you think of a self apart from the brain? I'd like to know what you think about that. Okay. Well, Sam, go ahead. All right. Well, nothing I've said so far, as far as I'm concerned, commits me to the idea of a non-physical self or or that there's something beyond the brain that affects action. All I said was that as far as we know, there could be something that, as it were, it may disobey other physical laws. I accept that. There may be, be, I mean, put it this way, there may be a kind of a fundamental mental force, right, Uh by which I don't mean a non-physical force. I mean simply an extra force in the world. There's gravity, there's the weak nuclear force. There might be, in in the context of brains, a special mental force. That needn't mean that it breaks. It's unorthodox. It's it's nuts. I mean, let's not... not beat around the bush it's nuts but as i said at the start when it comes to clashing with our sense of ourselves as in charge and our everyday experience and i bet norman doesn't live as if he's determined and unfree i mean what why is he here today for example one might ask what is it that makes him an epiphenomenalist yeah, could I jump in? When Norman was talking about having to stay with the laws of physics, momentum exchange, can I just give an example that's quite well known? If you have a circle of lights and right. you arrange for them to come on pretty close to each other, so each of them has got its own control, and, and you can actually make 
an apparent circle right. as the lights go round appear. But that is not something physical. It's not of itself. No, you need a perceiver to perceive this. Well, never mind that. You could have a robot camera. take. You could have. You could have a camera video it, and then not worry about who's going to look at the. the yeah. So all I'm saying is there is an apparent signal right. tracing the path of the lights going round as each bulb comes on. We're talking right. about quite a okay. few, which has an apparent speed. It has some kind of. I, I want to say here information exchange. Something, something can be read out from the movement round those right. dots, <laughs> dots of light, and in that way, it is possible for us to have something that's physically designed, but which isn't contradicting the laws of physics, but may, to a perceiver, if you want to come uh-huh. back to this, or to some readout mechanism, may actually impart information, and then that may make a change. And so what I was going to lead on to later, so I'll just mention it here, so at least you know what it is I'm talking about, is perhaps Gerald Edelman's um, theory of neuronal group selection, which, to put it in the shorthand, is groups of neurons within neural nets that then are able to hold and categorise and work with memory, I won't go into this yeah. too much, but work with a sort of dynamic memory in order to, to be learning machines. But the key point is that you get groups of neurons which are rather like what I'm talking about with that circle of lights. They're all fed in by the physics individually okay. as to when they switch on and switch off, but comprehensively looked at as a composite, coming back to a design stance by Daniel Dennett, something like information can be read off and that may make a change to future decisions in our brain okay so let me see you're saying that uh, you can have information behavior that's not that's sort of uh, emergent from the behavior of physical particles but isn't in contradiction to it well it isn't uh, ruled entirely by the momentum exchange Uh, the actual information that could be read out i only say could be it's only possibility wouldn't be ruled by the momentum exchanges going on in the underlying substrates that are causing it. Well, so that when Norman keeps on about Descartes and this swerving of atoms, yes, Descartes was wrong. And right. I don't think that either Sam or I are committing ourselves to that. Well, look, I, I, I want to ask you, you and Sam, I want to ask you basically, the, I mean, the problem is if, if the mind does not make, isn't the leader in the making choices, isn't it, if it isn't ultimately the mind that makes the choice then it's not choice and if it's not and if it's not the physical particles that are ultimately uh, determining what's happened then it's not determination so which one which one is the thing that determines what's happening is it the mind doing the determination or is it the brain doing the determination i think it's a both but you've got to have one or the other yeah, i don't think you do i think really? we can have quite a few processes that are unconsciously driven but i do think that i want to leave room and because because of experience uh-huh. as sam says because of this feeling we have of free will and of making a choice i want to leave the potential for room for something of a physical nature that does make some choices here and now okay there are, look there are hundred thousand million nerve cells in the brain we can't be conscious of all of that and so most of this battling that Edelman is talking about that you were referring to, I totally agree. There are all these battles between the neurons going on at a subconscious level. They're fighting it out, and they've got quantitative measures of all the various things. I was asked, why did I come here? I, uh, there's 100 neurons saying I should come, and there's 20 neurons saying I shouldn't, and, and therefore I'm here. So this battle went on in my unconscious. All I get passed up to my conscious mind is the result that I'm coming 
coming to, to, for this meeting. So we're only a conscious of a tiny fraction of the processes going on. Sure. And the feeling of freedom is just another conscious experience, like the feeling of hunger or the feeling of thirst. It, uh, that's all it is. It's produced okay. by the brain, but it doesn't, you can't use it to work out what the brain is doing. Okay, uh, Samuel, uh, uh, comment. I've just got a point of clarification. Because um, it seems to me that we've got kind of two issues in play now. One of which is whether the, whether our experiences of choosing and our conscious minds actually are, you know do any causal work in what we do, and, right. and Norman's denying that. Quite another question is whether we are free, given that our conscious mind does you know have some effect on our on our actions. Sure. Those are two distinct issues, and I wonder maybe if we want to. No, maybe not well, that. if there's different, there's obviously different different meanings of the word freedom. But I mean, what when we're talking about <coughs> the question of is there such a thing as free will or free choice? What is your sort of definition of freedom that you'd be using, for instance? Um, I mean, I guess this. I guess to this extent, I'm a libertarian. I think the, the notion which means of, what? Sorry. Um, well, you mean it means you believe in free will. It means I believe in, in a kind of intuitive, everyday sense of free will, and, I, and this is the way I would choose to sum it up. I mean, Norman thinks, <clears throat> given the evolution of the universe up to up to this point, right, whether or not I'm going to raise my left index finger next is, as it were, already fixed ahead of time. Right. Whereas I. Um, I at least want to believe and I want to find a way to fit this with the science which I'd like to us to get to so I can knock it down right. um, I would like to believe that it's left open whether I raise my left index finger or any other finger or whether I jump up and down and so on and so forth at least within you know a range of possibilities okay um, so that's what I count as freedom okay well I mean I'm I'm not I certainly did not deny that we make Choices. In fact, I spent the first part of my talk explaining how animals make choices. We've been doing it for 600 million years. We're conscious of the result of our choice if we're conscious. In the case of an animal, it probably isn't conscious of the result. It doesn't need to be conscious because consciousness doesn't do anything. In other words, animals can survive and make ch choices that save their lives without their being conscious at all. Sure. What, in that now, case, so what I, is the point of nice. consciousness? Well, okay. I think the real question is, what is the point of free will for the people who claim to believe in it? Well, so we can make if, choices. No, no, right? hold on. The people who believe that animals have been evolving for 600 million years, making ch important choices, which is why they've survived, those that have survived. Now, do they have free will in the sense that Sam thinks of it? And if not, why not? How can they get well, by it? to be conscious to I, start I, I, with. No, no, I've just explained. Most of the animals are probably not conscious. Yeah, even so the they don't have free will, right? Even a tiny insect make makes choices. Makes okay. choices. That's the so the question really for the free will people is, how can an unconscious animal make a choice? Well, it doesn't. Now, I'd like to know whether how Sam, whether he thinks that insects have libertarian free will as well. <laughs> and if not, why not? <laughs> Maybe they do. I mean, but it seems, I mean, we're just, we're just getting to get into a kind of a definitional discussion now. I mean, I can say, well, they make choices, but they're not free choices. That they, they will things, but it's not free will. And the question is, you know, we have a certainly a distinctive experience, which which Norman accepts it, it exists, and we do experience of freely self-determining ourselves, making the next thing happen, right. you know, un in an unconstrained way. And the question is whether that as it were, matches reality. And, and it, you know, it's not really to the point where we want to call what insects do choices. It seems pretty clear that they don't, you know, they don't have feel the same experience that they're going to flutter their wings or, you know, I don't know, wag the leg or, you know, wag an antenna or whatever. It, 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 it seems to me a distinctively human question in that sense. Okay. 
but uh, you can put a rat in a maze and it runs down the T part of a maze and when it gets to the T junction on one side of the T is some food and on the other side is a blind alley it's got to make a decision and it can make that decision so if it were well now you're anthropomorphizing for sure aren't you making a decision is is presupposing what's happening in its brain which scientists at this very moment can measure they can detect that a process is going on in its brain are going on in its brain and it's remembering which way the food was the previous time perhaps and so it makes this decision and what i'm saying is there is no difference between that decision process and our decision process that, that, they, they sneak you know that's what you're saying that's your big that's your big nuclear weapon of a claim and i'm saying you know where did you get the ammo from you you didn't give us an argument there all you really said was here's how animals function i claim and i reckon we function the same well i want, I want an argument you're just restating your view in different words well, i'm just i'm just just repeating what you can read any week in the new no, scientist you're, you're interpreting it according to your metaphysical position anyway <laughs> we're going to go into uh, suzanne vega now and uh, then we're going to talk a bit about the science, I think. Do you remember when you walked with me Down the street into the square How the women selling rosemary Press the branches to your chest Promise luck and all the rest Put their fingers in your hair I had met you just the day before Like an accident of fate In the window there behind your door How I wanted to break into that room beneath your skin But all that would have to wait In the carmen of the martyrs With the statues in the courtyard Whose heads and hands were taken In the burden of the sun I had come to meet you With a question in my footsteps I was going up the hillside And the journey just begun She never dreams at night There are days when I know why Most possibilities within her sight With no way of coming true Cause some things just don't get through Into this world, although they try In the carmen of the martyrs the statues in the courtyard Heads and hands were taken In the burden of the sun I had come to meet you With a question in my footsteps I was going up the hillside And the journey just begun And all I know of you Is in my memory And all
Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance. I have with me Dr. Sam Coleman, Norman Backrack, and Camilla Martin. We're talking about free will, whether there is such a, th- a thing. Now, there's the reason why this question is really sort of quite prominent in sort of philosophical circles, I suppose, is that there's been in recent years several experiments which. Uh, raise doubt as to whether our decisions are as free as we as they appear to be when we make them uh camilla you said that you can describe to the listeners what this um experiment is well, the very famous benjamin libet um experiments uh-huh. and i wanted to query the interpretation of these they were famous for purporting to show delayed conscious awareness of decisions uh-huh. in his experiments i think he had electrodes on the volunteers heads but in any case he was looking at the motor cortex predominantly the movement bit of the, the brain, movement yeah. the bit that would actually trigger and and begin the movements for the muscles. And um, uh, where was I? And he asked the volunteers to keep an eye on the screen where he had a special clock that had just one hand, like a second hand, but I think moving quite a bit faster, so that they could note when they made an arbitrary decision to press a button. Right. Um, The idea was there'd be no particular trigger for their decision. We might want to question that. Um, But it's the interpretation I want to look at. Um, He saw an electrical signal in the motor and any other connected areas before, 300 milliseconds it was. A third of a second. Yeah, before they reported. And he went only on their reportage later as to when they made the decision to press the button. Let me see if I got this right. You're saying this guy reported that the area in the brain that is preparing the muscle to move operates... A third of a second before we make the conscious decision to move according well, to this what, experiment. Well, what is strange about well, it is that yeah. there's, there's... Can I finish, though? There, yeah. It's actually that, that you have something called the readiness potential, yeah. which is a bit like a firing up an electrical signal saying, are you ready, guys? Are you going to be ready to move in right. a minute, That's fingers? That's what he was measuring, And yeah? that can be 150 milliseconds before. So there is a bit of a variation on the timings that we want to look at. And if I can put this into a nutshell, I think that we should consider the physics of the situation. Right. And the signals of the light getting through the eye to the genet nucleus to tell us that we've looked at that clock and taken a kind of snapshot of it and then also talking to your muscles and so on and so forth the whole thing takes a bit of time so that to cut it all short the decision making is smeared over time so i was going to call this session about time therefore you are looking at a process that takes time you're not looking for something that you're only summed up with at the end and the end bit the bit where you report it and notice the clock is when it's gone into working memory or some kind of conscious memory there has to be that bit so there's a bit there's several processes you're saying the experiment isn't as accurate as it's i think not i think it's looking for a single point a cartesian theater where a person says i'm doing it now and in fact it's it's a smeared out it's process. It's saying the decision making is not simultaneous. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So oh, instantaneous. Um, it's a process. Instantaneous. <clears throat> if I may, the the problem with the experiment is is much more simple. I mean, as regards the alleged disproof of you know the relevance of conscious decision making. Um, there's no evidence from the experiments that, that the action would have happened without the person taking the conscious decision. Whether or not that comes after the activity in the motor cortex is irrelevant. The, the question is whether the activity in the motor cortex is enough for the action, regardless of the conscious decision that comes at the end, and there's no evidence for that at all, as far as I know. But I think, I think the problem with the Libet thing, this, this experiment, is if your brain has already decided you're going to do something, then the conscious yeah, decision you've is got it just, right. Is yes, just, I think that uh, the, proper the proper description of the experiment, as I understand it, is that the decision occur, the decision itself 
can be shown to occur by scientific means a fraction of a second before you are aware of that decision. Right. It's not a case of you making the conscious decision uh, after some brain event. Right. It's the, your awareness of the decision which has already begun to take effect. Okay. Now, so I, I should also add, of course, there are brain events which are simultaneous mm-hmm. with the conscious experience. So the whole thing does need further investigation. Okay. So but it all, um, not, I mean, with, sorry, but that's, I mean... I don't know, I don't want to use too strong a word, but that's rubbish. I mean, you know, you just described the experiment in an extremely contentious way by saying it's scientifically proven that the decision occurs half a second before you're aware of it. What happens is, described neutrally, there's an event in the motor cortex, which is indeed the area linked to your muscles and so on. About half a second after that, uh, you become... you. you aware of yourself taking a conscious decision to say raise your finger now one interpretation of the experiments is that the thing that causes you to raise your finger is the activity that starts in the motor cortex before your conscious decision but here's another interpretation the activity in the motor cortex sets up the action and consciousness has the final word on it and as i said before i'll just repeat myself the question is could the action would the action have occurred without the conscious say so and there's no evidence for that so the real point is that you're still regarding consciousness as something apart from the brain and my position which may be wrong is that the conscious experience of vetoing a decision or going ahead with a decision or anything else is itself generated by further brain events yeah, but if it's generated by the brain it isn't the brain because the brain it's no, not the brain exactly. doesn't generate itself it for certainly sure. is not the brain that's not my position well, okay, that consciousness fair. is the brain it can uh, be epi- the brain how could it be the brain? If the, I, if, if the I'm mind not, is generated by the brain... Well, I'm not saying that brain? consciousness is the brain. I'm saying consciousness is uh, an epiphenomenon... Well, let's move, let's move on. Okay, ...generated but, but, by the brain. That's my position. OK. I mean, I, d- I don't understand, Sam, how you can... Uh, why you don't think that the mind is a, de- a different thing from the brain. I don't... Nothing I've said has commits me to that. I mean, uh-huh. it may be that there's a little consciousness module, and that's the, you know... That's the location of the self. Okay, it sounds a bit Cartesian, I admit, but it could all be perfectly physical, and still that's up, that's, that's it, upstream of the sorry downstream of the activity in the motor cortex. But it gives the final say so, and I, I don't see why I don't see there's any reason to reject that picture. Uh, I mean, I don't want to repeat myself for the third time, no, but you know, the question is whether the action would have occurred just given the motor cortex activity, and the experiments give no evidence for that at all. Well, I'm not sure it it's doesn't a coherent make question because it's all uh, connected together in the in the brain isn't it? Uh, you, you seem to think that uh, free will is possible because of quantum physics. Why do you say that? Um, well, this really is nuts. Are you sure you want to hear Yeah, this? go on, go on. Yes, go on. Okay, well, well let's say that the kind of... Cons- the normal interpretation of the Lebet results is is right, and the the, the event was going to you know your action was going to happen just because of the right. activity in the motor cortex. There's an, there's a, an interpretation of quantum physics on which every possible thing you could do actually happens. So consider yourself sitting where you are right now. You could raise your left hand, raise your right hand, cross your legs. I don't know. You could. Um, all of these possibilities happen somewhere in some universe somewhere. Yeah? In different, well, you could call them different universes, different worlds that exist. The, all of these things happen. Everything you can possibly do happens. Now, what may it may be possible? I don't know. This just occurred to me last night when I was coming out of the pub. So it could be a bit speculative. But if if, if, if <laughs> After consciousness how many points? Uh, three, if you're able to jump between these worlds by by if consciousness is able to do that, right. well, that would mean that. 
you, what you would expect to see experimentally would be a certain amount of brain activity that was going to be that was going to cause you lifting your left hand, let's say in this case, and then your mind, your conscious mind, you know, kind of choose in choosing to lift the left hand, it goes into that world where your left hand is lifted. Now your left hand gets lifted. According to the laws of physics, what goes into that world? Your consciousness goes into that world. Your consciousness elects the next step, the next, the branch, if you like, that goes out from you. The next branch where your left hand gets raised. I think. I think it's more likely to be a case of uh, your consciousness is attaching to brain states that move through different possible pathways in the multiverse. Yeah, anyway, that's my idea. Can I ask Sam? Supposing none of this was true and that physics was a lot simpler and there's only one universe, would this uh, knock out your belief in in liberty? And free will. Very nice question. Um, okay, well, <laughs> so there's another ropey rope possibility that I mentioned earlier, which is that uh, consciousness is physical, but there's a kind of basic mental force that somehow doesn't violate the conservation of energy. So I, I okay, what I'm what I'm basically saying is this: <laughs> I will squirm and wiggle as hard as I can to try to keep okay. freedom as I as I experience right. it, because okay. unless there's no way to do that, I think it's philosophy's duty to try to interpret science in accordance with everyday experience. Uh, well, look, for hundreds of years we believed the Earth was flat and at the centre of the universe. That was the common belief. It wasn't the job of philosophers to sustain that common belief. Sometimes you have to overturn common yeah, beliefs. But it's known and one of the major it? things that's going to happen now is that this belief in free will will slowly, in the next few decades, disappear. Rubbish. It'll disappear why, why, in the rubbish. legal system. Why are you trying to change my mind if I have no uh, choice no, about no, my No, no, hang on. No one's going to stop you feeling free when you do what you want to do. That's your feeling of freedom. But that's perfectly consistent with the causal story of your feeling of freedom and your ability to do what you want to do arising because of a decision you or your brain if you like has made so you're still going to have your feeling of freedom and no one can take it away from you you've no possibility of changing my mind by your own view so yeah. it's strange. Okay, look, I'll, I'll leave them fighting over that in the corner. Camilla, I just want to ask you, we're nearing the end now, but in what way, given your position on free will, in what way are we actually responsible for our actions? Well, I think that we are. It, um, yeah, but how can you say we are if well, we're not actually free? What do you mean if we're not? Well, I don't think that we are not actually free. I thought I was trying to very slowly put a position that says that it is possible to have exchanges of information and that they will, will make a difference to future decisions uh, without violating the physics that Norman keeps talking about, momentum exchange determinism. So I, I don't want to commit myself to saying that my very last brain state, although we don't know which brain states yeah. we're looking at here, you know that what i actually did want to say was i think some processes are unconscious i think it can be a combination of hobbesian compatibilism but i wanted to leave the way open for certain things to be willed in that very old-fashioned i think perhaps i will commit myself to a libertarian stance here that very old-fashioned way in which when you really need the x to go the extra mile if i can just give an even a, a rather twee sort of animal example I, I saw i saw some film of um uh, a tigress and uh, her cubs had fallen down a pretty steep bank and she tried she tried a couple of times to help this cub couldn't do anything looked around for help and then made a herculean effort to to really not tumble down herself and managed to hoik the thing right. up okay. and so i just think that's where although it doesn't go against physics but it is something to do with us making this extra herculean effort in situ so we are taking the design stance, not wholly looking at the backseat driver, the, the Hobbesian reductionist paradigm of determinism all the time. We don't keep that in mind all the time. Okay. And what we keep in mind has an impact. Okay. 
Well, the drunken MP a few weeks ago needed <laughs> six policemen to hold him down. So all sorts of people can make Herculean efforts under certain circumstances. I'm not sure this gets us very far. Uh, as far as responsibility is mm-hmm. concerned, uh, I, I feel responsible in that I was asked to come here at 6.30pm, and I did. Um, but who did but that? I'm not, your brain state or your the, mind state making is, a choice? I don't claim any virtue. Right. I'm res- if I'm responsible in that particular regard, and I'm not always early, as some people would t- ever tell you, <laughs> it's because of my complete history and background which has produced me as i am so you're and basically so saying that no, you don't and, make and any choices that break you free of your predetermined of situation he's denying yeah. once, having a character once we get once we get rid of libertarian free will we would have to look at all human action in a much more compassionate way than we have to uh, we have hitherto we will have to realize that they're always a causal story of why they behave as they have even if it's an awful way and this is something we'll have to get used to in my opinion yes but you're leaving it rather fixed uh-huh um right you listeners you might have guessed that my i'm sort of biased in this conversation i think i think that because of the way that we experience ourselves as making decisions that's all the proof we need to show that we do have free will now how that is compatible with the, the laws of physics is another question i think at the point of choice it's the mind choosing one brain state rather than another this doesn't imply uh, a non-conservation of the laws of energy or anything else it just implies choosing one thing rather than another now uh, that's complicated because how can something like a mind make a choice that affects the state of your brain but that's what you're committed to if you believe in free will i think now, does anybody disagree with that? I absolutely agree we make choices. If I went to a cafe and, and, and Grant, you asked me, do I want tea or coffee? I had to make a decision, right. which I made. And so, of course, we make choices, and I felt it was a free choice. Mm-hmm. I'm not denying that we make choices which we call free. Right. What I'm saying is that's compatible with there being a deterministic story, and given the universe as it was, and me as I was, at that instant, I was bound to make that choice, tea or coffee, in that instant. And that doesn't mean I can't mm-hmm. be influenced in the future by someone telling me don't ever have tea again or coffee again of course we can uh, change ourselves there's no fixed characters in this sure. determinism doesn't does allow for complete changes of the future the present changes the future but the past has caused the present okay well i i see a lot of contradictions in that but i think that's a good enough summary to sort of uh sort of draw it to a close has anybody got any events or anything they want to plug sam um, yeah, so I, I run a project on consciousness at the University of Hertfordshire, and we've got a coming to a, coming to a close after three years, and we've got a big conference at the end of the month. There's still just about time to register if you get your skates on. It's called the Nature of Phenomenal Qualities. It's about uh, the nature of sensations and consciousness and their place in the brain. So very relevant to what we've been talking about. If you, you so if you go to the website phenomenalqualities.wordpress.com or Google Phenomenal Qualities, you'll find the conference details and the registration form it's on the 29th of march till the 1st of april so yeah we, you know we'd love to see give the uh, website again it's www.phenomenalqualities phenomenal qualities that's all one word lowercase.wordpress.com okay great uh, anybody else no 
Well, I hope to be at that conference uh, of Sam when I found out that he's got it. So I okay, hope great. to plug yes, my own views at the same time, if I'm, if <laughs> yeah. I'm allowed. You'll, you'll be standing at the back heckling. Okay. You're going to be um, banned. I, I just want to plug my... <laughs> well, I want to plug two things. If you That's like free. these broadcasts, there's a Philosophy Now podcast on philosophynow.org stroke podcast. There's about 30 of the yeah, previous shows on there. And I also want to strongly recommend my brilliant books, The Meta Revolution and Love, Solitude and Destruction, which you can buy... Um, electronically and uh, next week will be the final show it will be Anya Steinberg talking about uh, philosophy and literature with her guests and uh, I think in honour of the coming US elections this is President Gass by uh, Psychedelic Furs